good to see you this morning. Uh, those of you who are joining us online, welcome. We're glad that uh, you're joining us as well. Um, it's, uh, it's a good season that we're in. It's, I love the fall. Uh, I love a time of Thanksgiving, not just for those mashed potatoes, although those are a benefit, but a time to remind us that we have a lot of things to be thankful for. And the truth of the matter is that no matter what you've been going through over the last day or two, week or two, month or two, year or two, that you have a lot to be thankful for. And so I'm glad for a time that reminds us to be thankful. And over the last couple of weeks, that's really what we've been talking about together this, this identity of being wildly generous, that it's not something that we do, it's something of who we are. And we looked back the very first week of this message series about the idea that you're rich. I know it was a shocking surprise to some of you. You didn't know that you were as rich as what you are. But we discovered that those of us who are sitting in this room today, we are in the top percent of the world's wealthiest people. Whether you feel that way or not, that's true. And what is true is that oftentimes we define how wealthy we are based on what we don't have, right? If only I had this or if only I had that. But, but the truth of the matter is, is that we're wealthy because of what we already have, that God's already given us so much. And then he expects us to do something with it. And we looked at this, this really cool verse I talked about that, that we're called to be rich in good deeds, that we're, we're not just given these things for ourselves, but that God wants us to do something with it. And then last week, we talked about the idea of, of the small things, the cup of cold water, the, the hospitality, the things that, that maybe don't seem like they're really huge, significant stuff, but the small things matter. In fact, as, as Jesus is telling us this parable of the kingdom, he, he talks about how at one point in time here in the future, he's going to sit on his glorious throne and he's going to separate out sheep and goats. And as he does so, he says, I'm going to say to some people, when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I needed clothes, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited with me. When I was in prison, you watched out after me. It's the small things that make a big difference. Today in, in our message today, we're going to be talking about a matter of the heart. And I want to start in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. This is what it says. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any other possessions with their own, but... They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work with all of them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses would sell them and then brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anybody who was in need. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think, well, that sounds really cool. I don't know that I've ever been a part of a group of people that look quite like that. 
I, we could stop right there at the everybody was uh, uh, of one heart and mind. Ever been a, a part of a group of people that wasn't quite that, right? So I think to myself, how did they get there? I mean, that's a weird verse to kind of pluck out and then apply. And so how do you get to that point? I mean, surely there must have been some amazing things, some, some awesome things, some, some things that were snowballing. I mean, they, they must have had amazing pastors and amazing ministers and amazing leadership. And their church must have been just going on fire. And they had all the right things in place to be able to get to this point where, you know, everybody's all together in unity and they're giving like crazy and they're supporting one another like crazy. And there's, in fact, not a needy person around. I mean, surely everything was in the right conditions for that to happen, right? Little backlog on this story. Well, we won't read it together, but you can read it on your own. It's really fascinating. Acts chapter 3, John and Peter are walking along, and there's this, there's this beggar. He's been begging for years, we find out, by this pool. And and he wants somebody just to give him some money to make it through another day. So he's calling out and he's calling out and he's calling out. And, and Peter and John just happened to be there. And it says that he called out to them. They have anything to give him. And Peter says, listen, I, I don't have money. Silver and gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I'm going to give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, take up your mat and walk. And he does. And his life is changed. And that's when everything breaks loose. If you know the story, then you know what happens next is the guy goes on and he's, he's leaping and he's jumping and he's praising God. And it draws this crowd because everybody's saying, isn't this the same guy who's been begging by the pool for a long, long time? And he says, oh, it absolutely is. And then they say, well, listen, how in the world then is it possible that now you're running around, jumping around like crazy? And he says, it's this guy. He said, he said in the name of Jesus Christ, take up your mat and walk. And then I was able to. And so they said, is that true? Is it true that, that you were able to heal him? And he says, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was, it was the name of Jesus. And so they say, tell us more. Tell us more about this Jesus. They said, do you really want to know? Is this the same Jesus you killed? See, it's the, it's the stone that the builders rejected. It's, it's the cornerstone. It's the same Jesus that you crucified on a tree. That's the, that's the same name that gave this guy a different life. And there was such an uprising. It says that there were many people who believed that day. Because sometimes seeing is believing, isn't it? And the people, the authorities, the, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the, all the lawmakers, were they, they were scared. They didn't know what to do. And so what they did was what anybody does when they become threatened and fearful. They take Peter and John and they throw them in prison. Uh, we got to contain this right away. So here is Peter and John. They're sitting in prison. And then the next day they bring them out and they say, listen, I, we don't know exactly what happened. But what we do know is we don't need this problem anymore. So we're going to let you go, but you can't talk anymore about Jesus, okay? 
Now, if it, if it might have been you or me, we might have said, well, you know, that did get us an awful lot of problem. And I don't want to spend another night in prison. And Peter says, I don't know who you are, but I know who my Jesus is. And I can't stop talking about him. And so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do the thing that I know is the right thing to do. It ends interesting, this, this conversation between Peter and John and, and all the, the religious authorities at the time ends is interestingly. It says that they threatened him and then let him go. And it's kind of like, if you do this, one, how many of you have been there with your parents before? Do it one more time. I double dog do it one more time and see what happens. And that's where Peter and John leave those people and then they go back to the group of believers and they tell them everything that happened. Hey, listen, we were out and this, the, the, you know the guy who's always by the pool, who's always begging, right? Yeah, you know that guy? Well, we were there and, and we, we blessed him with knowing who Jesus Christ was and it changed his life. And you know what happened next? We spent the night in the slammer. And then you know what happened next? They, I mean, they threatened us. In fact, I'm pretty sure that we may be killed for this cause. Acts chapter 14, Peter, or Paul and Barnabas. I mean, in fact, here's what's crazy. Paul is stoned. He's, he's not, not like he took some kind of drug, right? Let me clarify different kind of stoning. They take him out with these rocks and they throw rocks at him until they don't move anymore. And the goal is to kill him that way. So that's what they do. They, they grab Paul, they, they throw him on the ground, they start chucking rocks at him and eventually they think we killed him. So they drag his body out of town. It says that in Acts chapter 14 that all the disciples gathered around him and suddenly he springs up to his feet and then he goes back to work. And you know what he tells them? So you're going to have to suffer a whole lot of things on account of the gospel. So go back to the story here in Acts chapter 3 and 4. They spend the night in the slammer. They're threatened with death. The church is gathering around and then jump back into our text. All the believers were in one heart and mind. And no one claimed any possessions of their own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace, underline that, highlight that, was so powerfully at work with all of them that there were no needy persons among them. And from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. See, the context of that was that the apostles had just been persecuted. They were threatened. And in fact, at the end of this story, it's kind of booked in with more threats of death and persecution. Historically, Christianity and Christ's followers' faith has actually thrived under persecution and hardship. 
I have found and history has found that the easier it is for us to walk in faith, the harder it is for us to walk in faith. We would love to legislate morality. It would be easier for us. And yet, in some ways, it's just not as easy for us to follow Christ when it's easy. It's almost as if Paul were right that we will have to suffer many things in order to follow the gospel. See, what made these early Christ followers of one mind and one heart? What made them generous and sharing was knowing that there was a hope bigger than them. It was understanding that there was this grace. Remember that highlighted word right there? That God had given them so much that through everything else that they were gonna participate in was just diminished. It was just a part of it. They saw what Jesus went through in his life and they said, listen, if that's what our rabbi is going to be about, then that's what I'm gonna be about too. I'm not going to expect the easy way out. I'm not going to expect things to come naturally. I'm not expect them to come easily, but I'm still going to participate in this. And what I find too often is that we lose hope when things get tough. And here's the problem. You cannot hold on to hope and fear at the same time. You can't hold on to hope and fear at the same time. When we think the bottom is falling out, when we think there's nothing left, it's, we grab a hold of fear. We, we grab a hold of the concerns. We, we grab a hold of all the things that are going wrong. And it would have been so easy for that day for Peter and John to say, you know what, listen, I'm out. I, I, I don't need another night in jail. I don't need to be threatened with death. Listen, as we see the rest of the fathers, we just need to tell them, like, listen, lay low. This just let's, I, We believe in Jesus. But just, let's, let's tone it down a little bit. But instead of holding on to fear, they hold on to the hope that they have in Christ, who not only at his words brought a man to life, who was laid limp, who had no legs, no mobility, but he brought people to life. And he brought you to life. This message is not lost on me, and I hope it's not lost on you. See, I think Wellhouse as a community and everything that you've been through and everything that has happened might be silently waiting for the next shoe to drop. Fearing the worst or wondering why all the hardships has happened to begin with and why you've had to go through all the things that you've had to go through to get to this point. And it would be really, really easy to hang on to fear. Instead, 
I believe it's time, like the early Christ followers, to hold on to hope, to hold on to a God who does immeasurably more. It's really the story of Christians. It's the story of people who hold on to hope despite all things. When, when hardship and persecution is surrounding them, they say, listen, this is the time where we shine the most. It's the time where we're the most generous, the most compassionate. It's the time where we're the most one in mind and heart. We gather together when chaos and craziness has happened. We're unfazed. And it's because we choose, instead of grabbing a hold of fear and the worst, we grab a hold of hope in our Christ. Maybe, maybe it's time to hold on to hope. That's a sidebar. I haven't even started preaching yet. Let's go. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, we're going to be here all day. Maybe. All right. Keep reading on here in this fabulous, amazing story. This is what it says in verse uh, 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. N number one, what a cool nickname. What a cool nickname. I had a couple of nicknames growing up in high school. None of them were like a son of encouragement, right? I mean, son of something, but not of encouragement. Listen, God brought me a mighty long way. Barnabas sold a field that he owned. Why is that important? Why is Barnabas a Levite who sells a field important? Well, come on, those of you who know your Old Testament, what do you know about Levites? Well, they, they, they're the priestly tribe. They didn't, didn't have any rights to any land like normal people did. So he wound up acquiring this. He somehow got this land, and, and it, was, it was not of his, right? But somehow he, he wound up in, uh, obtaining it in some way, and he gives it away. He sells it, and then he, it says that he put the money at the apostles' feet. This is the second time this is mentioned, right? It's, it, it gives this overarching thing. Listen, this is what the church looked like under, under persecution. This is what it looked like under desperate times. This is what it looks like when everything is going wrong. The church is going right, and there are people who are giving and serving and loving and, and a being of one mind. And then it points out one great example, Barnabas. Nickname, son of encouragement. And in fact, most all of the scriptures that refer to Barnabas, it's the guy who you want to be around. It's the guy who, who just at being around this guy was like, oh man, I, just, I need five more minutes with Barnabas. He's the guy that's continually, he fuels my fire. He encourages me to be a better husband or wife. Or he encourages me to be a better father or mother. He, he encourages me to be a better Christian. He left people better off than he found them. That was Barnabas. You remember the story of Saul turning Paul? Here's Saul who's on this murderous rampage, and he sees people who are professing Christ, and, and he's, he's going to hold their coats. He's going to track them down and, and hold the coats of the people who are going to stone them and kill them, throw them in prison. He's making sure that he can do everything he can do to wipe out Christians. And then... Saul meets God on the road. He's blinded and he says, listen, listen, stop. 
what, you, what you've been doing is you've been persecuting me. And from this point on, you're, the people you've been persecuting, you're going to actually been leading them to follow me more faithfully. And so Saul has to do this complete turnaround. Now, now he, he's a Christ follower. He's a Christ believer. But if he killed your family and if he killed your friends, how eager are you to invite Saul into your house for an evening? And so the scripture actually says, as, as he kind of comes into community with the disciples and the apostles, they all want nothing to do with him. They're all fearful of him, except for one person. You know who that was? Barnabas. It says that Barnabas was the guy when nobody else would, when everybody else was holding on to fear. Barnabas held on to hope. And he took Saul in. And he actually introduced him to the other believers. That's Barnabas. Barnabas is the guy who, remember the story of, of John Mark, and, and he went out with Saul and Barnabas on, on all these kind of uh, travels, and they're teaching and they're preaching, but something happened with John Mark. We don't really know what it was, but he wind up leaving them, and they're deserted, and Paul really is hurt by this. And so they have an opportunity later on for John Mark to join them again, and Barnabas says, yeah, 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 in. He's in, and Paul says, no way. And Paul and Barnabas actually split ways and Barnabas takes the guy who deserted him before. That's Barnabas. Barnabas is a son of encouragement. He's a joy to be around. And here's what I believe about Barnabas. Here's why he's willing to sell land and give it at the disciples' feet. Here's, here, here's why he's willing to take Saul, turn Paul, and, and believe and hope in the best in him. Here's why he continues to, to do his ministry with John Mark. is because when your heart is changed by the gospel and your mindset is shaped by the gospel, you'll respond differently to people and possessions. When your heart is changed by the gospel, and your mindset is shaped by the gospel, then you'll respond differently to people and possessions. You're, you're going to believe the best in people. You're going to hope the best in people. You're going to be of one mind with people that normally you would not be one mind with. When your heart and your mind are changed and shaped by the gospel, and that was Barnabas. But as Luke does, and as a lot of the, the gospel writers do, he gives us this contrast. Here we see all the believers who are in one heart and mind. And we see this great example in Barnabas, a son of encouragement. Luke continues on in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. He says this, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the, at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? And what made you think of doing such a thing? You've not just lied to humans, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. 
And a great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. And some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes. She said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What a different story than the way it started out, right? We get this painted picture of the church as all in one, one accord. They're all in unity. They're all in lockstep together. They're all, they're all giving and serving, and there's nobody needy. And we read this story of Barnabas, and he's the son of encouragement, and he's giving, he's selling his land, he's laying at the apostles' feet. And then we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And it's a disturbing story. I remember it being a flannel board story. You remember those if you grew up in church, right? It was one of those that I felt like struck fear in me too, much like the early churches. Like, whoa, there was a lot of people who did a whole lot worse things and they didn't drop down dead. And why did these people drop down dead? And that seems like a really uh, kind of uh, a harsh way to go at it, right? I mean, maybe a little chastising, maybe a little something, but... Here's this story. When I look at it, I think, man, it wasn't wasn't even that Ananias and Sapphira weren't generous. I mean, they actually gave. It says that they held back a part of it, but they gave the rest. It wasn't the sin of a lack of generosity. See, the sin was that they wanted their actions to be more pure than their hearts were. I want to say that again. They wanted their actions to be more pure than their hearts were. I think that's the biggest disruptor of churches. I think we fall short the most when we want to appear to be something that we are not. The problem is that Christ calls us to be generous, to be wildly generous. And did you notice in the scriptures before it says, listen, the whole church, whenever it had anybody, they, they would just come and they would lay at the disciples' feet. And then we see this example of Barnabas and he sells this field. He's a son of encouragement. He comes and he lays it at the, at the apostles' feet. And so Ananias and Sapphira are looking at it like, well, everybody else is doing it, but I don't really, I mean, that's a lot of money. And if we just held a little bit back, we still, but let's not tell anybody that because we're going to look bad. I don't want to look bad around church people. So why do, what, we'll just hold like 10% back and then we'll just tell, uh, you know, hey, we're still giving 90%. That's great. The danger comes when we want to appear more pure than our heart really is. 
See, we have a gravitational pull to mask the real for the ideal. And my guess is in this room today, if you were just like really honest about the stuff, like about the things, you know, that you don't want anybody else to know, if, if you're really honest, you would find a group of people who also had stuff that they didn't want anybody else to know either. And the wonderful thing about Wellhouse is this, is that we recognize we are a group of imperfect people. But the beautiful part of that is that God loves us too much to leave us that way. That his goal is to transform us. To take us from people whose, whose motives and whose heart isn't as pure as what we always try to make it out to be. And to turn us into a church who, through difficulties and hardships, through frustrations and anxiety, through, through times where we don't see eye to eye and we, we, we sometimes riff with each other, that we grow and that we're together. And that our hearts, though not always great, are grabbing on to hope and grace. See, for Ananias and Sapphira, their actions spoke more about their reputation and how others saw them. And that's what bothered them more than the needs of their brothers and sisters in the church and how they looked in their eyes. But I believe, had Ananias and Sapphira truly grabbed a hold of this understanding about this grace, about what Jesus really did, and they would have found that they could be real. That they could be real people with hurts and habits and hang-ups and still be in a community of people who love them well. Band, if you'll come on up to the stage. Paul, remember Saul who turns into Paul and he begins to travel around and he tells other people about Christ who changes life. In Corinthians, this letter that he writes to the church in Corinth tells people to give from the heart. Giving is a matter of the heart. And this type of wild generosity only comes from the recognition of the gospel, a God who saves See, you can change your behavior and you can give to the church, but it doesn't mean that your heart is in the right place. We see two examples, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. When you recognize that God sent his best when we were at our worst, when he freely gave, when he loved you in spite of it all, that's why we give. As Paul states, it's not just meeting the, other, the other's needs, but it's an expression of gratitude for what God has done. Then that's where wild generosity begins. That's where it comes from. A grateful heart, a true recognition of what you've been given. And today, together, we get to celebrate that in something we call communion.
It's a communion with each other, this body of Christ, but it's also this communion with God. It's this remembering and retelling the story over and over again of how God took you from this place and he brought you a few more steps closer to him. And the amazing thing is that we're all still in the transition period. And listen, persecution and trouble, it's, it's at your door. Hardship, suffering, it's, it's right there. Falling short, it's there too. Sin and struggle, depression, anxiety, it's all there. Family strife, fear, anger, it's there too. And you have a choice to grab a hold of the fear of it all and be paralyzed or to grab a hold of hope. Communion is the place where we remember we have a hope that is greater than any of it. And so as you gather around the table today, may you be overwhelmed in God's grace that he gave his one and only son so that you would have real, true, abundant life. So today, as you gather around our tables in the back, if you need to pray with somebody, our shepherds, our lead team, somebody just grab them and pray. And listen, remember, God loves you. He loves you the way you are. And he loves you so much he won't leave you there. Let's pray. God, we are so, so thankful for you. We're so grateful for you. We're so grateful for the grace you've given us. God, we're, we confess to you that, man, it's so tempting, so easy to, to grab a hold of fear in this life and to let it rule our thoughts, our lives, our decisions. It holds us hostage. It makes us anticipate the worst and forget the best. So God, as we grab this juice and this bread, may we once again put our hope in you, the giver of all things, the unifier of all things, the only place we can truly put our hope and it be satisfied. And God, would you do it again? Like the early churches surrounded with so much persecution and hardship and yet, as they unified themselves and put their hope in you, they grew and they were strong. God, would you do it again? We pray all of this in the power and might of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.